0: Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a weekly podcast bringing readers and writers of Australian fiction together. I'm Claudine Tinellis. As an avid reader and passionate advocate for Australian fiction, I make it my mission to spotlight local talent. So if you're looking for your next read or simply want to learn more about the Australian literary scene, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and relax. There doesn't seem to be one particular well-trodden path to publication for any writer, as well I know from speaking to many on this podcast. Nevertheless, I'm still intrigued by the various ways writers end up publishing their stories, and this is especially true of my next guest. Jack Ellis is a Sydney-based writer and musician who has two published novels to his name. Jack studied classical composition at the Sydney Conservatorium of Music and the Royal Conservatorium in The Hague. If that wasn't interesting enough, Jack later went on to study dispute resolution and law and then became a family mediator. In 2014, his first novel, The Best Feeling of All, was published and his latest, Home and Other Hiding Places, was released earlier this year by Ultimo Press. A tender, poignant and at times funny insight into fractured families and one little boy's attempt to find where he belongs. I'm delighted to welcome Jack to the podcast today. Hi, Jack.
1: Hi, Claudine. Thank you so much for having me on the show
0: it's my absolute pleasure congratulations on the release of home and other hiding places it's been a long time between drinks hasn't it
1: well it has i suppose yeah and um and one of the things that your listeners will know and you all know as well is that sometimes life gets in the way and i think that you know there can be this constant sort of pressure to get something done and what and you know get it out but i think sometimes you just need to slow down you know, put things in a drawer, have have you think about them for a while. And so, yeah, so between the two books, it was uh, six years, I think, yeah.
0: And are you happy with how it's been received? Are you delighted to be seeing it out in the world oh, on yeah. shelves around Australia?
1: Absolutely. No, and it's a real privilege. And I would say, actually, you know, the real privilege is experiences like this, you know, talking to people who've Read the book and who seem to sort of sometimes know more about the characters than I do. I've um, noticed things about the book that I think, oh, yeah, I suppose that is there. And, and it's, you know, that's the real privilege. And, and yeah, and being able to, you know, sign books and have people talk to you about it is an absolute privilege. And, and especially seeing in bookshop windows. And, and I've had some wonderful reviews, some really generous and, and thoughtful reviews that have made. I suppose my job of working on my new book easier too because it's given me a sort of boost to think, oh, maybe I do know what I'm doing, yeah, so.
0: Indeed you do. <laughs> and as I mentioned in my introduction, you're a family mediator and you must see many families who are fractured by conflict. So I wanted to ask you, was this where you uncovered the inspiration for Finn's story?
1: Yeah, I think so. And I, I think for me, the kind of, Beginning for writing a novel, because, you know, as we've just talked about, it's a long, big, you know, it's a major work putting together hundreds of thousands of words that all kind of go in the right order. You need to begin with a kind of kernel of an idea, and then for me, well, what is the kernel of the idea? And then that almost, that central idea determines which characters you should use, where you should set it, how, you know, and you build the kind of... the 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 story around the idea and for me what the sort of central idea for this book was often with conversations with adults who kept telling me talking to me about conflict in their lives and these are friends and family and lots of people you know i'm in my early 40s now and so lots of people going through family separation and and the challenges of raising kids and i kept hearing this phrase oh but kids are resilient you know kids when kids bounce back and it was almost always in the context of them telling me that they weren't coping and the reason they're not coping is because of their experiences as kids. So I kept hearing this sort of contradiction about how kids are meant to be somehow more resilient and... Um, When in fact, what was happening in a lot of the people that I was, you know, in the lives of a lot of the people I was talking to and and my friends and family and things was actually they were so preoccupied with the demons of their own childhoods that they were actually passing those demons on intergenerationally to their own kids without realising it. And actually, I think the people who could see that most clearly were the kids and that if you were able just to say, oh, what's going on in your family, you'd get these very simple answers that were actually entirely correct. Oh, well, everything would be fine if Daddy would just be nice to her. You know, this type of thing. I mean, I'm going perhaps a little into depth about this, but, you know, you'd have kids sometimes drawing pictures and things of their dreams of their family. And quite often it was just Mummy and Daddy looking at each other. You know, Mummy and Daddy nodding when they speak. And so I wanted to kind of, in a way, explore this myth that kids are somehow more resilient than adults, because that seemed to be this thing, that the idea that despite all the experience that we've had, despite the kind of maturity that adults are supposed to have, that somehow kids were better equipped to deal with conflict than adults were, and that they would bounce back. And so I, that's why I wanted to tell the story from the perspective of a kid whose, I hope that this comes through in the book, whose parents are doing the best they can. You know, I didn't want to write a judgmental story about how everybody's doing everything wrong but how even when you're doing the best you can sometimes you know what's going on for the kids gets lost down a list of kind of higher priorities that's yeah that was the idea for the book and definitely my experiences of working with families in conflict and just talking to friends and things going through it was where it started and then I tried to think well how would I shape a, a narrative around that idea
0: Okay, so for those who haven't been as lucky as I have and haven't read this book yet, can you tell us a little bit more about the story?
1: Yeah, sure. So the central character is a eight-year-old boy named Finn and uh, he and his mum live in a sort of isolated rural property on the uh, north coast or sort of northern rivers of New South Wales. The book begins when they come down to spend Christmas in Sydney with his grandma and his... Um, great stepmother as well who lives in the house and it's set on the north shore of Sydney and although the the suburbs not named it's kind of that sort of East Kalara sort of region that where the the waterway leads down through the Roseville Bridge and then in towards the harbour and it's a beautiful bushy area that's sort of you wouldn't know is there unless you kind of fly over and it's a really bushy sort of part of Sydney and pretty much Within a couple of days of arriving, you see that there is a lot of unfinished business between Finn's mum, Lindy, and Gran. And this tension starts to sort of really boil over. And it becomes, as so often conflict does, the preoccupation in the household. So nobody is really watching what Finn's up to. And he meets a little boy next door named Rory. And one of the themes of the book is that that Lindy's mental health is fairly fragile. And as a result of him being the the son of the, you know, the weird lady, you know, for want of a better word, up in the Northern Rivers, the other families have always kind of kept their kids away. And he, so he's never really been able to have a proper friend. And so he meets Rory, who's living next door with his grandfather, and suddenly he finds that, and I think he describes it as that runny sunlight feeling in his in his blood of love. And and he sort of falls in love with little Rory. And very much the story begins and, and the arc of the story is set up with a sort of almost love story between him and Rory and the adventures that they have because they're not being supervised and really... The family sort of is crumbling um, while they're sort of down in the bush.
0: I want to talk a little bit more a bit later about Finn and Rory's friendship. And I actually, okay. I loved Finn so much, but I I almost loved Rory as much.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you.
0: <laughs> what a character he was and what a beautiful friendship they had. But for now, I wanted to say that for an eight-year-old boy, I felt that Finn had the weight of the world on his shoulders. Lindy, his mother, as you said, had some serious mental health issues, and and he had an absent father, and relations between his grandmother, Antonella, and mum, Lindy, were very strained. So obviously, we've already touched on the fact that you are working as a family mediator, but I wanted to ask you, you, is that something that you see a lot in your work, and did you find it difficult to imbue Finn with these traits?
1: Well, I think that one of the things that I've learned from the work that I do, but also, again, just, you know, being around kids and and other families, is that between that age of sort of about seven to 11, there's a sort of tipping point that occurs, which is that younger kids, say, you know, four- and five-year-old kids, they effectively see the world through the prism of the family, you know, and the way the family does things is just the way the world is. But around about that sort of 8, nine, ten age, you start to go, actually, maybe, you know, my parents don't know everything and maybe they're not really coping and maybe <laughs> that's not what everybody does. And if that's combined with genuine emotional distress and family breakdown kids often feel a lot more powerful in the family than they really are and they feel an intense responsibility to protect everyone and to some extent heal uh, what's going on in the family often because they can see it quite clearly um, but they don't have the maturity to really understand what's going on in the family in the adult dynamics and so what you'll get the various versions of this but it happens with you know constant regularity is parents who have separated recently and who believe with their absolute heart of hearts that they're trying to do something that the child wants but it's because the child is telling each parent different things and they're only doing that because all they want is their mummy to be all right or their daddy to be all right and so they get very, yeah, weight of the worldy about it being their job to look after the adults in their family. And I hope one of the themes that comes through in this book is that, wait a minute, it's parents' jobs to look after kids, not the other way around. And that includes And that dynamic doesn't necessarily change just because people grow up. And so what, as you'll see, there are three generations in in this story and that those dynamics of parent-child dynamics persist into adulthood as well. And that actually, interestingly for me, uh, as you can imagine, I do a lot of work with um, coercive controlling violence and family violence and, and often patriarchal male violence. But one of the areas that I see coercive controlling violence probably most often or as often as is intimate partner violence is intergenerational coercive control and the the tools of that tend to be different they tend to be more like shame uh social standing you know all of these sorts of things but where grandmas or grandpas exert tremendous coercive influence on their families and child through, as I said, mechanisms like shame and fear and even threats of self-harm or whatever. And um, it's an aspect of coercive control and family dysfunction that's not often talked about because quite rightly we focus on the intimate partner violence, which is kind of, I don't know, more prominent at the moment. But it's a real dynamic. And having said that, though, I also want to acknowledge that pretty much every example of elder abuse that I've ever seen and ever had anything to do with involved an adult child abusing their parent. so it doesn't just happen one way but it's definitely that intergenerational dynamic has sometimes deeper more devastating roots even than intimate partner coercive control and so that kind of intergenerational theme is very much part of the book as well
0: the thing that both fascinated and dismayed me about what was going on in Finn's life was the way adults seemed to assume that whatever was going on around Finn that he remained unaffected by it now you talked a little bit about this this idea that kids are resilient but we could see that you know Finn was most definitely affected by the things that went on around him weren't we?
1: Yeah. And I think one of the things that is easy to forget as a parent is that kids are always listening and they're always absorbing what's going on around them because their brains are tuned to do it. I mean, it's how they learn to talk. So, for example, when my son was born, I just found it absolutely amazing that I didn't have to teach him to talk, you know, that he just taught himself, you know, just by listening to the, the adults around him. And that doesn't stop when they learn to talk and once they learn to talk and they read they're absorbing everything around them and honestly i think it's because there's a simple evolutionary basis for it which is that the only thing keeping them alive is the adult relationships around them and so they need to be tuned into what's going on in order to ensure their own safety and so quite often you know, I think parents think, oh no, they don't notice, they're just watching TV or whatever, and and one of the the phrases that comes up regularly when you hear from kids talking about their parents' separation, particularly or parental conflict, it was as though um, their parents were in a bubble, and that they thought that nobody could, you know, knew what was going on, but actually everyone, everyone knew exactly what was going on, but the parents' were so focused on each other and using up so much emotional sort of petrol each day on each other that they thought that it wasn't affecting anybody else. And and that analogy of emotional petrol, I think, is also real for kids because I think each morning when a child wakes up, they have a certain amount of kind of emotional petrol in their tank. And what we want them to use that emotional petrol on is... um, Making friends, you know, navigating the complexities of the schoolyard, you know, learning, you know, all of that. And then when they go to bed, their tank's pretty empty, they're tired, they're ready to go to bed, but they've used it up doing the kiddie things that they need to do. But the truth is, for a lot of kids, that by the time they even get to school, they've already used up a lot of their emotional petrol on worrying about mummy or worrying about daddy or worrying about what's going on and just dealing with the sadness or loneliness or anger or whatever in the house. And so by the time they even get to doing the jobs they're meant to be doing, their emotional petrol tanks are almost empty. And so one of the messages I hope that comes through in this book, and one one of the things that has been lovely, and that's a lot of readers have said to me, oh, the first thing I did when I finished this book was I ran out and I gave my son a giant hug, you know. Yeah. Um, because i think we can forget you know that especially with screens and stuff you can kind of think oh no they're tuned into something else but they see it and their emotional petrol is being used up on it but one of the other things too and and hopefully this was true for you is that i wanted to deal with big topics but people can only engage with big topics if they keep turning the pages you know so it's as far as i'm concerned it's an adventure story but it's an adventure story that is set in the context of the real family dysfunction that goes on around us everywhere.
0: So beautifully said. I love that analogy of emotional petrol. Mm -hmm. And I'll have to think about that (laughs) (laughs) a little bit more and I will be giving my daughter a big hug
1: (laughs) after
0: (laughs) after this interview. In many ways, Finn was an unreliable narrator because what he saw wasn't necessarily the truth of what was going on around him, right? I mean, I couldn't help but think that if someone just sat him down and answered his questions or gave a thought to how he might be feeling that he might not have drawn some of his own more sinister conclusions about what was going on around him, right?
1: Yes. And look, I hope, and that, and that's why I regard it too as an, an adult book, you know, even though, and it's, I think that's a particular narrative challenge is to engage an adult read, reader through a central child character. But what I wanted was for the reader to think, well, I totally get why he has come to that interpretation, and there are these words like poison and things that are used and stuff that he takes a bit more literally than he should. Mm -hmm. So you can totally logically see how an eight-year-old mind would just take those things literally and put two and two together and reach the conclusions that he does. However, at the same time, we as adult readers know (laughs) that that's not really what's happening. And and so, again, I suppose it's that thing of a little boy feeling that he is – more powerful and more responsible in a family than he is, but just knitting together his own narrative of what's going on because his parents are not providing a cogent and um, clear narrative of their own that he can understand.
0: I mean, you know, he did get up to some hilarious hijinks. (laughs) But at the same time, I felt so sad for him that he felt like it was, you know, it was him against the world. It was him trying to protect his mum, And and then it was almost him trying to protect himself from what he thought was going to happen to him. And I just felt like if somebody had just sat him down and really just listened to him instead of just telling him to be quiet or telling Mm. him to, to stay inside and tell him to go into his room, he may not have gone down that path.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But I think too, it's easier said than done, isn't it? That, you know, especially with the the complexity, you know, that exists in everybody's lives and particularly people who are, you know, struggling with uh, mental health and, you know, family conflict, coming up with an explanation that, you know, deals with possibly the sexual dynamics of a, you know, a married relationship and all of this kind of stuff and all of that is quite complicated. And so one thing that I never wanted to do was to have even a hint of judgment in the way that I, I wrote about the adults, because in the way that we kind of wished that Finn, well, you've put it beautifully, that you wished that someone had just sat down and explained to Finn what was really going on. Part of the reason the adults are the way they are is because nobody ever sat them down and told them what was really going on, you know, and and they've had to form their own assessments about what's important and, you know, and they've derived meaning from their own experience in a similar way. It's just they're a bit further down the path.
0: Now, yeah, we talked a little bit about Finn's friendship with Rory a bit before, but, you know, despite all that turmoil around him, he managed to find not only friendship, but adventure with Rory. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Now, what a character Rory was. And as I said, I loved him almost as much as I loved Finn. Mm -hmm. Why do you think this friendship was important to the story?
1: In a way, I think friendship is the great salvation of uh, humanity in a way, because you do not get to choose your family right but your friends are the family you actually get to choose and particularly with those early friendships that begin in childhood I mean these are people who know you better than often your parents do or they know what you were really up to as a teenager etc all that sort of stuff (laughs) you know they know you better than your family members do even and so I think that for me the centrality of friendship is the saving grace of kids in crisis and that ultimately those friendships are often sort of intergenerational too and you do hear those great stories of you know, a child who's not coping but then meets the dance teacher or the music teacher or the sports coach or or the teacher, the school teacher, who is able to see them for who they really are and is able to see that despite the chaos in their lives and the struggles that they've got and the fact that perhaps they're acting up in class or, you know, whatever, that actually this is a real person with real value and is worth listening to. And that actually I suppose the friendship between Finn and Rory, apart from being a fantastic source of adventure and hopefully very funny dialogue is is about that thing of choosing the the people in your life you can choose but because they will be the ones that will help you ride the waves of of turmoil that you know families inevitably go through
0: at his age, I think Finn had a very strong moral compass. And nowhere was that clearer, I thought, than when he went on the road trip with Dylan. He knew mm-hmm. what Dylan was doing was probably not so great or mm-hmm. right, um, but he was powerless to stop him. So what I wanted to ask you, Jack, was do you think that kids know more about this than we give them credit for?
1: Yes. I think that, and sometimes to their detriment. And so what I mean by that is that morality is nuanced, you know, and and for example you know there used to be a thing i remember that you'd see stenciled up around sydney in the in the 80s which was just said don't starve steal right you, you look at that as a, a fairly complex you know moral message but the truth is if your family's starving and you know it's not your own fault what should you do you should steal right and i think that the fact that kids often have a very black and white thing okay what should you do if someone's really vulnerable and they're needing support and they're asking quite complicated questions what you should should you do you should lie you know and sometimes the simplistic way that kids think about morality actually is to their own detriment and that that i think sometimes the process of maturity is actually learning that morality is never black or white. And in different contexts, it's absolutely right to lie and in different contexts, it's absolutely right to steal. And so uh, that said, though, um, the relationship that he has with Dylan on that road is you're talking about a character in Dylan who I'm sure we've all met before, but one of those young men who have grown up essentially believing that the system is rigged, And that the only reason they're poor or disadvantaged or whatever is because the system has kind of hoodwinked the world into making some people rich and some people poor. And so on one level, you can see, you know, Dylan's view of the world through the prism of class, you know, and I think that the ethics of class are still very alive today, even though we don't talk about it so much. But particularly with the landed gentry of the Middle Ages, you know, who had all the power because they had land ownership, you see the impossibility of land ownership now for, you know, a lot of people in Australia and and things, and the way that that flows on and affects the whole society as a re-emergence of this almost aristocratic kind of landed class, you know. And even though the, the mechanisms of power that, that the class wields are totally different, um, it still has a classist uh, element to it. And so I think what's interesting for Finn is that he knows what they're doing is wrong and, you know, and is illegal, etc, etc. But Dylan actually provides a fairly cogent narrative of why in a in a rigged system that is designed to oppress the lower classes, actually breaking law breaking the law is the right thing to do. And um yeah, so hopefully the reader, a bit like that. Finn is a bit like the earlier things about Finn knitting together his own narrative. Finn's knitting together a narrative based on what his father's saying that I think you know, hints at what I was saying before about he's starting to see beyond the prism of the family. he's starting to look with at the world with his own lens, and actually that's the way that Dylan's behaving doesn't really add up.
0: Like I wanted to talk a little bit about your transition from study of music to family mediation. Uh-huh. What was it, do you think about dispute resolution that made you want to work in that area? after studying music for so long?
1: Well, On one level, it was pragmatic in the sense that you would know with writing and with music and with every creative endeavor, making a living, and particularly if you want to have kids and and things and provide any sort of level of economic stability, is really, really challenging. And so what I knew from my experiences with friends and things, so the natural thing to do that, you know, is to teach music or something like that, or to teach writing or, you know, whatever it is that that your love is. But what I'd seen with my friends at the same, who went to the conservatorium with me and things, and who had become music teachers, is the effect that that it had on them was that they would spend all day listening to sort of a seven-year-old scratching on a violin sort of thing or whatever, and then the very last thing on earth they wanted to do when they'd finished work was work on their own composition or work on their own music and so I kind of made a sort of pragmatic decision that I wanted a job that was unrelated to music so that I could still, in those gaps I could find between making a living, still really wanted to do it, you know, rather than not wanting to do it. And initially, I that job was working as an English second language teacher. And so I worked for a few years as an English as a second language teacher, which was a really great experience. I was teaching adults entirely and they were often very interesting people. You'd sort of get these, you know, Hungarian psychiatrists who'd come to learn English and things. And so you'd have these really interesting high-level conversations. But I kind of, within a couple of years, I'd sort of reached the top of that in the sense that I was never going to be able to progress any further in that in that career. And so I started looking around for something else that I could do part-time so I could continue to do music and, and by this stage writing too. And there was this emerging field of mediation and there'd been an amendment to the Family Law Act in 2006, which re- meant uh, mediation was compulsory uh, before you could go to court. And there was a trend worldwide towards dispute resolution mediation rather than litigation because it's... Often so destructive and so expensive and so I pretty much just enrolled in the course and then once I'd done that then I so I did the mediation course first and then I did my law degree after that and so it was a way of having an interesting meaningful job that I sincerely believe helps people and I think as of the more I've done it has not only an immediate beneficial effect but also an intergenerational effect that if you can settle down conflict within families you help their kids families and their kids kids families and all of that to have a more functional more civil way of interacting but that wasn't musical writing and that i could do as as something different so
0: did you always want to be a writer
1: no i uh (laughs) i always wanted to be a songwriter yeah and so from the age of probably about 12 or 13 that was absolutely my first love and I've written lots and lots of songs and lo- heard lots of bands and, you know, and I'm classically trained, as you mentioned, and did my degree at, at the, the con in Sydney and then in The Hague. There was a moment in, in my concert music career where I was living in The Hague. I was an interesting person from Australia who was getting some attention and I had to kind of make a decision, basically, did I want a career in concert music or did I want to live in Australia? Because there's just not a sort of, except for you know, uh, within universities, let's say, there's not really a, a concert music scene in Australia that can support a career by itself. And I wanted to come home. I love Australia and I, you know, my family are here and all of that. And so that meant at that point that I was making the decision essentially to be a sort of folk singer-songwriter, playing bands, that sort of thing, because there was work and an audience for that sort of music. By the same token, you know, I was in my mid-twenties and people are starting to have relationships and even with the classical pieces, you need a lot of collaborators, you know, and you'd be dealing with a crisis in their lives you know their relationships breaking down what was going on their challenges and that sort of thing and you'd finally get a classical piece you know accepted by an ensemble but they wouldn't have enough money to rehearse it properly and and all this sort of frustration of working with collaborators in you know who are in under-resourced environments so after a while i was like oh god i just want something i can do by myself you know and so it was actually a direct response to my band at the time sort of breaking up you know it was like okay well what am i going to do now i've got all this creative energy and i just want to do something where i don't have to rely on everybody else turning up on time and you know taking it as seriously as i do sort of thing and so i began and at that point so i'm sort of telling the story in a slightly wrong order, I was working as an English language teacher and I went traveling and I ended up living in Phnom Penh in um, Cambodia. And it was largely because you could at that time and possibly still can, you could just buy a work visa at the um, local motorbike shop. There was this particular motorcycle shop in, in Phnom Penh that just sold work visas and they were valid work visas that everyone uh, and everyone just knew that you went to this and it was called Lucky Lucky Motorbike Shop. Very lucky indeed. (laughs) Every single expat in Phnom Penh bought their visas at Lucky Lucky. And so it was practical because I didn't have to go through the rigmarole of getting a work visa and that sort of thing in another country. And so suddenly I was living in Phnom Penh in a really unusual, conflicted time. The Khmer Rouge trials were on. It was all this sort of thing. And that's when I wrote my first novel, which is actually unpublished, and probably in retrospect was my sort of practice novel, which was a a book called Mango Rain, which is set in Cambodia, I suddenly had this amazing power. I could write something and, and if I if they were misbehaving, I could kill them or I could, you know, turn them into something else or change yeah. them into a donkey or whatever. And so you had this amazing sort of creative power to create these worlds and I could do it by myself. And whether or not it was ever published, whether or not, and in that case, there was a lot of heartbreak that led to it never being published, but it existed, you know, and it was done. And then I had, uh, you know, I met my wife Alice and, and we had a son and the the prospect of convening music rehearsals became more and more difficult. The idea of touring became more and more difficult. And so it was like I could just sit somewhere and with a pen and paper and, and I do write by longhand and just keep writing until it was done. And that's how I became a writer.
0: So, Jack, as you know, many writers listen to this podcast and given your incredible experiences to date, oh, <laughs> I was you. wondering if you had any advice that you could offer to aspiring authors out there.
1: I don't want any of this to sound clear, glib- but, because it's just based on my experience. But when I hear writers talking about how hard it is, right? and what I don't mean is how hard it is to to get published or to get an agent or whatever, I mean how hard it is to write Um, and that it's it's this painful experience. I think the reality is the only reason writing is hard, and I find it hard too, I'm not saying I find it easy, is because we're worried about what other people think. And so ultimately, I mean, if we didn't care what other people think, we could sit there and pump out, you know, 10,000 words a day or whatever and, you know, we'd be done in a week sort of thing, you know. But we're so concerned about the experience of the reader and what people might say when they read it and all that, that we really get in our own way and we really become the main obstacle to doing the work is this sort of second guessing about whether or not we know what we're doing. And so... The first advice I would give to aspiring writers is just to trust your own judgment. It's actually the first step. You need to just go, all right, everyone's just everyone and I've got to just believe that this is good. If I think it's good, it's good. Because otherwise what happens is you end up with all of these half-finished manuscripts. You end up with these things that you give up halfway and unfortunately particularly when it comes to, to novels a nine-tenths of a novel is just about as useful as one-tenth of a novel you know and like until the book's finished it's not it doesn't exist and so what i would say is that everybody else out there is wrong yeah and everyone else you can think of doesn't know what they're doing either Right? and that ultimately, if you think it's right, if it's true to what makes sense to you, if you think it's funny, it is, and go with that. And actually, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was from my composition teacher in Holland when we were talking about how to stay motivated in, in music composition. And he said, what you need to do is go right back and find the thing that very first turned you on to music, what was that thing? That sound? That feeling? What was that thing that very first turned you on to music? And go with that. And and I think ultimately, whether that was Louis Armstrong or whether that was Sepultura or you know Megadeth or whatever it was, that's what you should be writing. You know, because that's what that's what got you going. That's what started your kind of creative motor running. And I think. That's what I mean by trusting your own judgment. That go back to that very first kernel of, of what you, um, yeah, what turned you on to writing and why do you want to do a book, and trust yourself, yeah, and I mean there are some technical pieces of advice about getting up early and things I could say as well. But <laughs> but I think the most important thing is believing that you're right and that, that also that literary fashions will change. And that's one of, the, I think, the biggest risks that I see writers take is that they kind of think, oh, this is so hot right now, so I'm going to do a book about it, right? But by the time you even, you know the book gets accepted by the publisher which it will of course you're still looking at 12 months to 18 months lead time before the book comes out and so by then the caravan's moved on right and so you're writing a book at parades end sort of thing and um and it's sort of you know so write what turns you on what turned first turned you on to writing even if that seems out of fashion even if that seems wrong or not like with the current zeitgeist because probably by the time it's all finished and published, you'll probably be exactly where you should be. Yeah.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's really Thank valuable. You. Jack, if there was one thing that you wanted readers to take away from this novel, what would it be?
1: That life is an adventure and that we create the world in our imaginations and that as adults, we've got a duty to children to make sure that we're the ones looking after them, not the other way around. And that ultimately the static of adulthood often gets in the in the way of the purity of vision that we had as kids. And I suppose it's a similar message to what I just said, that look for that thing that that made you most happy about your family, about those things, and and try to stay true to those original things because life's an adventure that you create yourself.
0: Jack, I loved Finn's story. Uh, Such a beautiful, brave, smart and funny boy who I am sure will delight readers. Thank you so very much for joining me on Talking Aussie Books today.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me on Claudine, it's been a real pleasure and and I hope that readers enjoy my book because as I said before, when you're talking about big topics like this, you want something that, you know, where the pages keep turning and I'm fingers crossed, it's a page turning sort of pacey book that deals with some real life experiences for Aussie families.
0: That's a wrap folks, if you enjoyed this podcast episode, please drop me a line via my webpage at claudine com, via Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Alternatively, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Until next time, happy reading.